0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people by creative people. I am creative enthusiast and host of the show, Christopher Tallon. Thank you for joining us. Today, I have a really exciting guest on the show. But before I get to that, let me tell you about my friends at Rivertown Adventure. You've heard both of the founders of Rivertown Adventures in episode 1 and then in episode 16, Paul and Nate. They founded this business a little while back and it has just grown and brought lots of joy to the outdoor environment in Lansing, Michigan as well as cleaning up the city. Rivertownadventures.com. If you go there, you're going to find out about the most fun you can have outside in Lansing, Michigan. They've got kayaks, canoes, stand-up paddleboards, boats. They've got a big boat for events when, you know, when events come back. They will. They will, folks. They'll come back. In addition to all the routes that they already had, you can explore the Red Cedar River, the Grand River, and the Looking Glass River all in and around the Lansing, Michigan area. Guys, this really is fun. It's it's fun for yourself. It's fun for you and a friend, you and a you and a date, a group of people, a family. Get out there. Get on the water. Obviously, you're not going to get out on the water in Lansing, Michigan right now, but keep these guys in mind. They're strong, coming back stronger than ever this summer. RivertownAdventures.com. Live free. Go paddle. I want to also tell you about my friends at Baby Farm Soaps. Baby Farm Soaps is a homemade soap and soap uh, adjacent (laughs) uh, product company. They make soaps, beard oil, lip balms, bath bombs, uh, beard oil, lotion, sunscreen. Jeez, I can't even think. And then there's always holiday packages. You can get your products customized, get the labels customized for weddings, birthdays, or just for fun. You want to give somebody something that says, I love you on it with a a nice tube of their favorite flavor chapstick. Go to Baby Farm Soaps. They're on Facebook. So get on Facebook, type in Baby Farm Soaps, send them a message, tell them Creative Ops sent you, and get yourself something that smells good, looks good, feels good. Baby Farm Soaps, only on Facebook. Go get them. All right, and then the last friend that I'm going to tell you about is Hey Guys Media Group. Go over there and check out how you can get help making your own podcast. These guys helped me before they really got the business going. We've got a a, a nice little business arrangement here. And so I was kind of their guinea pig. So this show, because it's so awesome, inspired these guys to keep going on and uh, producing more shows. And they will help you with the little things, the big things, both as much as you need. And then they'll also help you have the expertise to eventually go out and do the stuff by yourself. So please go and check out Hey Guys Media Group at heyguysmediagroup.com and see how they can help you make your podcast. All right folks, I had Jeff Hall on the podcast. Jeff Hall is the force behind a group called Nonchalance out of the Bay Area in California. They are behind projects like Oaklandish, which was a cultural reclamation project uh, of sorts, if if I might call it that. When uh well, I'm not going to tell you too much about it now. Okay, Jeff gets gets into it he'll he'll explain it better than i will anyway so they were behind projects like oaklandish the jejun institute which was a participatory participatory arts experience that was uh revolutionary and exciting and ended up becoming the basis for uh, a limited series on amc starring jason siegel called dispatches from elsewhere and then shortly uh after that sometime they made this group called the latitude society and that uh was an interesting experiment in itself but it didn't work out that well and that's fully captured that whole experience in a documentary called in bright axiom, which is fantastic. You uh, can go out there. And I think that one's on Netflix right now. If, if, uh, if you're so inclined and after that didn't go so well, then my guest, Jeff just kind of laid low for a while. Creative. Uh, God, I can't talk today creatively. He laid low for a while. And, um, when he just got the urge and, and couldn't control himself anymore, he said, I got to get back out here with something. And, uh, it went through a, a few different ideas and iterations, but eventually what we got was The Signal Podcast, and I'm going to spell that for you. S-Y-G-N-Y-L. It, uh, it it had an intention to be something else and then became this, and it's ambitious, and it's big in scope, but execution of it's fantastic, and it's more than a podcast. That's all I can explain. It's more than a podcast. It will grab you and and suck you in. Uh, in, in ways that I didn't think podcasts could, quite honestly. Uh makes me rethink what I'm doing here. So on that note, I'm going to get to my interview here with uh, Jeff Hull from Nonchalance. It was really fun, really fascinating listening to uh, how he puts these really, truly uh, crazy, ambitious things together. And uh, on top of all that, he was just a nice guy to talk to. So that's always a plus. I hope you enjoy this interview, folks, with Jeff Hull from Nonchalance. And then go check out The Signal podcast. And go to nonchalance.com, find out about the stuff that they've done. watch the movies, the documentaries, and uh, any anything that you can to, to learn more about this because it's it's fascinating stuff. If you're into creativity, this is, uh, this is the place to be right here, Nonchalance. So here you go. That'd be kind of a good place to start as far as like where you got uh, into the whole idea of the participatory arts
1: certainly um well i talked about it a little bit in the in the documentary about growing up and being a child performer yeah at, uh, children's fairyland which was a prototype to uh disneyland actually walt disney came and visited oakland Oakland's Children's Fairyland, which was this like super quaint little um, storybook theme park nestled into the shore of Lake Merritt and everything like that. And so I was Jack of Jack and Jill, and I'd spend hours at this place. And there was like a yellow brick road and a rabbit hole you could go down into, and a dragon slide, and um, you know, little bit of wonder, right? And then I'd just go out into the real world and wonder why there was just all these fences and signs and gates and kind of like limitations everywhere and everything was transactional. It wasn't yeah. right. And I think that that probably all my life in an unconscious way is a problem I've been trying to solve.
0: Yeah. Well, we might jump back and forth a little bit here, but one of the things that I saw in um, on the website, nonchalance was that um, nonchalance by nature are very scattered type people who, um, have a hard time organizing. Um, and I'm wondering if, if that takes from your experience in real life, because for me right now, the the things that I do for, for money and for creativity is, um, blogging and this podcast. But if you had asked me in high school, what do you want to do when you get older? Neither of those were options. So, um, Uh uh, what was, uh, kind of bridging your experience from working at the, uh, the theme park up until nonchalance really got going. What was your, uh, what was kind of your MO as, academically and what got you really into the creative scene?
1: Yeah. So I studied film at USC. I was a jack of all trades during high school. Uh, I mean, sorry, during like my twenties, mm-hmm. I, uh, I did. I did copywriting for an ad agency. I was in a theater group. I was an MC in a hip hop group, hmm. uh, Golden Era, Golden Era. Um, and then I did graphic design for a while. I really didn't find my calling until I was in my early thirties, and I went to take a, a graduate course in um, interdisciplinary arts. Hmm. And that's where it all, all this glue came together. And now I do writing and I do film work and I do, uh, you know, graphic design and I do a bit of performance, you know. Yeah. And it's more like as an art director, I, I have a hand in all those things. So I'm not like super <laughs> adept at any one of those things, but they all have this intersection in this place that I call situational design and participatory art.
0: Yeah, and not um oh uh not augmented reality or alternate reality. I I saw an interview where you were like, "Please don't call it that. Um what's what's the <laughs> difference between it's what you do?" So, what's the difference between what you do and, you know, those other labels that you kind of feel misrepresent what you do?
1: Well, um so Virtual reality is obviously in a digital space, mm. even if it's, it feels immersive. You, it's through a monitor and through headphones, and then um, augmented reality is a, an interesting kind of series of platforms. That I mean, some of what we do is is augmented reality, actually. And as far as alternative reality games, yeah, there's a very there's a big culture around that background and there's a language and there's a sensibility around that that really does have to do with solving problems Mm. and like um, cracking a code or puzzles and things. So it really appeals to the analytical. yeah And most of the fans in that space come from a gamer background and have a community around those things which is like, we're gonna solve this puzzle, we're gonna crack this code. And that's why I'm constantly dealing with challenges of people trying to hack into the site or reveal information to the community or to um, really approach it from that brain space. And so what I'm really tempted to do in this project and in my other projects is allow people to drop down into their hearts, to mm. really like listen to something inside, to have a, a wandering experience rather than a goal-oriented experience, mm. right? Yeah. Um, to appeal to the sense of story rather than the sense of systems. So that's why I try to differentiate this and call it um, participatory art rather than an alternative reality game. Right. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um... Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it's an uphill battle.
0: <laughs> as long as people are talking about it one way or the other, that's the that's the important thing, right?
1: Yeah, I, I suppose so.
0: Can we talk uh, before we get into Signal? Can we go through some of the other uh, things on the Nonchalance resume?
1: Absolutely.
0: So, Oaklandish was that the first official Nonchalance project?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So, a little over twenty years ago, um, I just moved back to Oakland. And uh, it really was a street art campaign with uh, wheat paste posters and projections. And it all had to do around the historical legacy of Oakland. What is the part of the history and the culture that is being perhaps paved over? Mm-hmm. I had no idea at that time what it would look like 20 years later. Right. I mean, I was responding to the dot com bubble 1.0 and had no idea that it. The, influence that tech would have on the bay area but also i can recognize now that all things are going to change whether you like it or not and so i was just trying to be part of the conversation so that's what oaklandish was at the time now it's an apparel brand that i'm not involved with but um it does have a life of its own
0: yeah when uh, just trying to do uh, searches on oaklandish so many different things pop up between uh, clothing or um, hip-hop or, you know, the the project itself. So I'm kind of curious, you said that um, it was when you were taking grad school classes that you really kind of were grabbed by the whole participatory arts thing, right? Yes. Were you still in school or was um, Oaklandish right shortly after that?
1: I dropped out of school and started...
0: Thing. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I read uh, a little bit that, you know, culturally the impetus was on you for this because you said that you could tell when somebody was from Oakland because if they walked by, they would give you a nod or say, what's up, or something. And then you just noticed that more and more people were, you know, didn't have that feel. And you kind of, instead of being like, hey, let's stop people from coming in, you were like, let's invite them into the culture. No? Or...
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe at the very beginning, there was a territorial impulse, but more so it's about like, hey, I mean, welcome. And we say what's up to each other. We acknowledge each other in the streets. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's something that I, I hope to help preserve is just acknowledging each other in the streets. It can be just a nod or a hello or how are you doing or just what's up, whatever it is, just um, recognize each other in the street. Not, I would notice more and more people just simply not doing it. And I just realized like, oh, they are just, they're just not from here.
0: So was nonchalance something that started kind of around your creative ambitions and frustrations with what you were saw going on around you? Or did nonchalance start before that and you were just kind of looking for um, Oaklandish to be the first project?
1: Well, Oak or sorry, nonchalance was more of a a philosophy or a state of mind or an approach. And it was what I called my little arts crew, our little arts crew. was like we're nonchalance. Yeah, you know. And then um Oaklandish was this organic project that rose up out of that with the posters and the events and the liberation drive in and we do. Yeah renegade boat parties on Lake Merritt and um, capture the flag games downtown. And so that ethos of like playfulness and let's kind of do this urban playground thing, that was um, very much a part of the Oaklandish, um, you know, program at the beginning. And I just didn't realize how much of a magnet that those roots and that name would be. Yeah. And I didn't intend for it to become this entity in and of itself. Um,
0: which, which seems to kind of be a thread throughout some of your work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So yeah, around 2007, I had to let it go. I had to just be like, I, I, I didn't, I went, didn't set out to have a Glandish be like a full-time enterprise. Right. Like, from the beginning, and it turned into that, and then I had to kind of back away from it.
0: So, after Oaklandish, the the next Nonchalance program or program <laughs> project was the Jejun Institute.
1: Yes, and that's what I was really interested in from the very beginning. Okay, was creating creating some, yeah creating something like this. Yeah,
0: yeah I was curious if um, the just the kind of the concept of, of what you were trying to do with that grew out of oaklandish and saying like we can do something more or if you had that big idea you just didn't have the experience to put it together at the time
1: that's right around 99 and 2000 2001 i was writing a lot of you know theories about this kind of storytelling Mm. and it took like eight years for me to get back around to it
0: okay i was gonna wait a little bit to talk about um calvino uh-huh. But um, I I think that would be as good a intro into that as any. Did you discover Calvino um, in school or through somebody on your team or?
1: Actually, it was just last year that um, I have this book um, about the ulipo right? The, oh yeah. Uh, literary movement from, I guess they originated in France, but they're international, and it started in really the 60s and 70s, and Calvino was a big part of that, and there's this chapter in here where he outlines really a mathematical structure for how, if upon a winter's night, a traveler was written, and I read this chapter, and yeah, here it is, and... I was transfixed, and then I got the novel, and I was just having revelation after revelation, reading his novel and taking notes and taking notes about how he did this, turning a protagonist into a um, a hero. Yeah, um, and I wish I read it earlier.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, especially with the the second person perspective, which for people that don't remember from English class is the "you" perspective. I, I remember so many times in hearing does anybody ever use the second POV and teachers like, no, not really. (laughs) Like here's an example of not just somebody using it, but like really kicking the reader's ass with it too.
1: Yeah. Really making it fly. Yeah.
0: yeah. He's Italo Calvino is an interesting guy. I, one of the things that I thought was funny about him was that he hated his first name. Did you know that? I did not. (laughs) He hated it because his parents were scientists who traveled a lot and um, they were planning on living outside of Italy, so they named him Italo to remind him of his heritage, but then they moved back to Italy, and he said that he found his name, quote, belligerently nationalist. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah,
1: it's hard to live it down. I guess he did, did the best.
0: Yeah, and then I saw that he was influenced by a guy named A.J. Grimas, Grimas. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. I think that's a French name, too, um, with the study of semiotics. Have have you heard about that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean I know that's I, was, so I was I was going to say you must know about that because that in itself seems very much in line with um signal. Just the study of what well what is it? The study of sign processes and a sign being anything that communicates meaning that is not the sign itself to the sign's interpreter, which they then gave it a, somebody gave an example of Euro Disney. Like Euro Disney failed because they gave everybody this kitschy American stuff that works great in America, but they just saw that as being like trashy and like the retelling of their European stories was disrespectful. So, you know, (laughs) I thought, well, that's an interesting way to, to draw that line, but.
1: That's, that's a very astute observation. Yeah. It makes sense. But so yeah, like tying it together from the Jungian perspective of archetypes Mm -hmm. and symbols and stories and this kind of like, uh, a network of symbols and stories um, that are attached to our soul in some way yeah. is very much, I'm very much inspired by that.
0: And that comes through in all the projects that um, we've talked about and have yet to talk about is just kind of this sense of like, man, life is so, uh, there's got to be more to it. There just has to be. Um, and like you said, you've been struggling with how to present that idea. Uh, in a creative way but you must have also then just struggled with that idea personally too no
1: yeah i am um, i think my probably my main gripe about humanity is the lack of imagination yeah you know it's like and especially with all of these devices and technology that we have now i feel like we are just simply driving around looking for a parking space for our spaceships yeah. like we could travel interdimensionally we could do so much with this but because we're always just trying to do these transactional sales things we're we're missing out there's these kind of anomalies in our culture where true expression connection and presence or even options for different kinds of opportunities to have experiences are overlooked because we have to have this turnstile experience for everything, and that was another problem I was trying to solve, especially with the Jujun Institute. It's like, mm. what else is on the menu here? What what else is on the menu? Um, so I, before I, you know, put on the artist hat and said, yeah, I'm nice, artist, I can do this. I would like try to find answers to that question through disruption, you know, through destruction, through self destruction, through like really like, um, perilous means. So I did a lot of that like in
2: adolescence and
1: young adulthood and everything. And it took me a while to like figure out how to channel it into something creative. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't, don't try to convince people that this grid like structure is, um, you know, BS, just show them something else. Yeah. Something
0: else. yeah yeah for sure because i mean something when you were talking kind of struck me with this idea i was thinking about earlier somebody and i were talking about how um up until you're like seven years old you are in theta brain all the time which is that imagination and play space and then after that you just kind of slowly start to lose it and i don't know if that's totally natural. I don't think it is. I think a lot of that's just, you know, they beat it out of you with school. Um, you know, I spent all day in school imagining things, and you know, that's why I, I write now. I Everything they were trying to tell me in school, I was like, this is so boring. And then I would look out at the trees and imagine like, two factions of imaginary humanoid animals, like, fighting in the trees. You know, just forget geography. I can take or leave that. <laughs> so... Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm really actually grateful to the culture of the Bay Area, and that's something that like is also in the DNA of the projects. It's like um, I like was struggling so hard, you know, like after eighth grade, going into high school, and I ended up at this alternative school in Berkeley called Maybeck High School. Mm. And it's got about a hundred students, and it's what at the time was like so countercultural and hippie and like it was like we started off the year by going on camping trips and then all of january you just do an independent project and then the, there was hours throughout the day that you weren't in class and you're just kind of like god i got credit for sitting in on the apartheid protests at uc berkeley like that was credit for me and and my my u.s history class was the book was a pamphlet by my teacher called "Question Authority." Uh-huh. That was the name of my U.S. government class, and I learned that there are other merits of success yeah. here than the other ones that are being presented to me. Yeah, um, and there's other ways to do it, and um, I am eternally grateful for that experience.
0: The June Institute and the Latitude Society, I see a lot of similarities between the two of those things. Um, and I'm just wondering from, uh, well, I guess it deserves a little bit of an explanation for people that aren't familiar. The Jejun Institute was a participatory arts, what, what would you call it? An ex- participatory arts experience or?
1: That's as good as we're going to get. Okay. <laughs>
0: so, you know, it, people are invited into this thing and they can just go further and further. And then there's kind of a, kind of a, you know, sense of there's magic, there's there's more to life, um, which, which runs through everything else too. Uh, but how do you even begin to set something like that up? It seems because it went on for, I'm sorry, this seems like a really, really long rambling question, but it, there is a question in here. How long did it take to actually set that up? And how do you even begin to set up an experience like that from a planning standpoint?
1: okay so the first chapter of the Zhejiang Institute involved a bunch of flyers for absurd products and services that are totally surreal and then a bunch of voicemails that if you called those numbers you would reach these voicemails that were just audio pieces yeah. were, you know had a background and voice talent and a script and then, those voicemails and the product website. So I used to do web design, so I know how to build a website. And so there's a website. But it all was leading towards this induction center or this automated room in which you would go in. Um, And the original idea was like you go in and there's a chair and there's a VHS cassette and you put it in the thing and you press play. And then um, I... Uh, started collaborating with Uriah Finlay and he was like, Well, I can I can make the video start when the door opens and we can have audio playing in the room and I'm like, okay, okay, let's let's do that. And then um and then we curated the room. And so what I'm describing here is something that any producer, director, film person, they know they have these skills in Arsenal, you can do a soundtrack. You can do a flyer. you can do a set piece. You know it's just that it doesn't center around lights, camera action. It centers around more of an ins- installation aesthetic an installation artist what I'm talking about too. Yeah. So it's just a hybrid, of a little bit of performance art, a little bit of installation art and using all your neat TV and, and, and uh, film, video, production uh, tool set. And applying it to the world around um, and having it not be so fleeting, but something that people can return to again and again.
0: And the people that are involved in, um, you know, kind of just continuing this experience for uh, the participants, are they actors? Or are they just people that really like what you do and want to help or a little of both?
1: A little bit of both. So Jujun for sure was uh, a lot of friends just getting involved, and so some a lot of people you see in the film mm. uh, were uh, friends or or people who, you know, answered the flyer and showed up and just like infused themselves. And then there are also you know like casting calls, you know, like let's cast somebody for Octavio Coleman. For
2: yeah,
0: and,
1: and he's the best. Are
0: and then, well, the same thing with the Latitude Society, you, like, I when I watched um, uh, in Bright Axiom, <clears throat> I noticed that, you know, there has to be kind of like a base crew of people in order for the the newcomers to, like, feel like they're part of something, or no, do you actually start with, like, hey, first person here is the first person here, do you have kind of like a, a group of... No, we- We're building
1: that community beforehand. We had already been doing retreats, you know, out in the woods together, and building the sense of a story world and a magic circle of participation and like some of the language and some of the customs. We had been developing that for a long time before the first people were invited to the San Francisco House of the Light. So when they arrived, we were already doing praxis events. We were already doing you know little gatherings and.
0: So how long before that started, uh, like, like from the idea, like, okay, this is what we're going to do, to the time that you were having these, what, uh, you know, the film uh, starts out, it almost kind of looks like church services.
1: Right. So, I mean, the very first Latitude Gathering was like a writer's group of 12 people, we call them the, the Elders Council, and it was just <laughs> some folks who I wanted to collaborate with or who I was already collaborating with, getting together and circling up and kind of doing a bit of secret society stuff in yeah. the woods, you
0: know? Yeah. So how did, uh, how did the first invites even get put out there? Were they like, here, give this to somebody and tell them to give it to someone or like, cause you didn't obviously want to have too much of a direct connection with the, the creators, right?
1: Well, we did want to, to have a direct connection to the creator. So it was one degree of just like, I'd come to you and I'd say, Hey Chris, like, um you know, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee, right? There's something that I want I want to tell you about something. And now looking back in the world that we live in now with like QAnon and and all this stuff, <laughs> I can see how dark this can seem to somebody. Yeah, but to me, it's like I have like childlike wonder and creativity and sense of possibility. <laughs> but for other people, it's like a dark maze. What the, fuck? you know, they think they're getting invited to some polyamorous, you know, swimmer <laughs> party or something <sighs> like that. And for me, it was like, oh, I just gave you the secret invitation. And it's like, hey, can you, you know, between you and me, this is uh, under a code of absolute discretion. There's um, this group I'm involved with and I'm kind of sliding you the key card and it's like has uh, the little website on it so you can make an appointment but it's this like card like a credit card right yeah. with all zeros and everything like that and it's a swipe card to get into the uh, initial labyrinth. and so that's something that was audacious it was an audacious undertaking that you know, clearly wouldn't work in 2021, you know, it's so yeah. wild that these things kind of, the
0: culture keeps morphing. You hit on something too, just now that, um, I, I wanted to bring up at some point, which was fear hmm. because you had talked about, um, you know, politics doesn't change the world. Culture changes the world. Politics just kind of reacts. And, um, uh, oh shoot. I just lost my train of th- train of thought. Fear. Okay, yeah, um, and that uh, in order to make a cultural shift, you, you, the first thing is you have to get over the fear of the change itself, of the systems in place, and that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, oh hell, I just lost it again. I'm not high, I promise. <laughs> but I, but funny enough, yeah. though, I I am on a I am on a five day fast, and I'm three days into it. Oh really? Or pass out or blackout? I. It's probably because I haven't eaten since Sunday.
1: Is it like a cleanse or like a fast?
0: It's uh, it's a fast. And I mean, I guess it's kind of a cleanse too. But like my wife's a nurse and she's like, hey, I'm going to start doing these five day fasts because it's really good for you. And after so many days, your body starts releasing these things that protect your body and fix old injuries and, you know, ketosis and all these other things. So um she got... She did one and then I did one with her and now this is like the third or fourth time I'm doing one with her.
1: Yeah, I've I've been doing some juice cleanses occasionally, but I don't last
0: one for three days. <laughs> I've made it to five days once, four days once, and three days once. So I'm already starting day four now, so I'm one day ahead.
1: Right.
0: You're doing a transformative experience. I, I am doing a transformative experience. Um But uh, so did I ever even ask that question about fear?
1: You're working or dancing around it.
0: We're dancing around it. Yeah. So um, okay, I was talking about you were saying that there's like fear and cultural shift and there's oh, yes, this is what it was a need to overcome fear to actually make the change. Um, And I was wondering if incorporated into that thought process is kind of the way that you deliver um, like with the tone of these projects, because when I saw signal and got the invitation to participate early, I showed it to my wife, the prologue. She goes, honey, I don't think you should do this. This looks scary.
1: Really? Wow. And I was, she's
0: like, this, this seems, I don't know. This seems just like, it gives me a bad feeling. And then I was like, well, watch this. And then we watched your Ted talk and she goes, oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Do it. (laughs) But like, (laughs) you know, there is kind of a sense of like fear of change. And I, I didn't know if, um, if, if that was something that kind of drove you in, in as far as like introducing experiences to people?
1: You know, I don't like, um, I don't intend or even I shouldn't aspire to be somebody like giving advice or telling people what they should or shouldn't do. But what I do try to do is provide opportunities to take small risks, to just, to, go a little bit outside of their comfort zone and to take on little small challenges. And that first challenge might be like listening to the first episode of Signal, right? But if you follow the thread or the trail of breadcrumbs, there will be more opportunities to take a little bit more of a challenge. Well, to me, this is just the beginning uh, of a world in which, uh, a a story world in which, people are invited to, yeah, just go outside their comfort zones a little bit. And I would also add that for some, like when you leave some things ambiguous, like a blank canvas or just like a little bit, like we would blindfold people in the the Jejun Institute, like stage four in in the chapel of the chimes. And you know, people are like, they're getting the, the feels and the goosebumps, but they're also, you know, terrified. Yeah. Um, but we built that trust with people where they would they would be able to do that and we knew they knew we weren't leading them off of a the cliff. They knew that we there was going to be a hand to guide them in a general safe place. And there are people who would disagree with me on that point. But um I think that for some people the dark maze is a terrifying thing. Mm. For me. When I was 10 years old, I went to the Exploratorium in San Francisco. This is another, like, Bay Area thing. and It's just like this art, science, play, like, Emporium, you know, where they are doing all these exhibits and things. And there was this thing called the tactile. And it was built by um, Francis Ford Coppola's brother. Hmm. I think it was uh, Nick Cage's uncle or something. And it was like this rebirth. Art piece where you're just all of your senses are taken away. So basically, you're blind, going through a maze, through and you're climbing in and out of crawl spaces and falling down slides and the beanbags. And like when you can't see your hand in front of your face and you're doing this stuff, like you can be either elated, excited, or terrified. And sometimes it's a little bit of both. It's a sweet spot. Yeah. But I'm certainly not trying to terrify people and i'm not trying to scare you i uh, i really am just trying to like you know provide some wonder but sometimes when you don't explain it outright this is a podcast that is about an inner journey that is going to use a little bit of like sonic narrative um uh, dramaturgy to lead you towards maybe some interesting insights like i'm not going to say that i don't I'm not going to explicitly say that i'm going to say the sigma belongs to no one. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah that's my uh, yeah.
0: well the whole idea of like it being a fun play space kind of kind of lends itself to the idea that like you know you should stay in the game and like uh, like you said in um the the documentary uh in bright axiom about the Latitude Society was that um, things just kind of <laughs> fell apart, and people mistook reality for the game. And you said that you didn't want to just come out and say like, "Hey, guys, it's just a game," because at that point, it's not even fun anymore. But um, yeah, uh, where where do you <laughs> where do you guess uh, draw the line with? Because tell people kind of what happened with the end of the Latitude Society in Bright Axiom.
1: Yeah, so actually this really gets into this kind of like creative process and thing. And to me, like I'm learning if I think that if you are really kind of wading in the deeper waters in your creative life, you know, which is what David Bowie said. Um, like you should be just a little over like a little beyond your own depths, you know, you should be going into deeper waters, right? And yeah. if you are doing that you're going to be learning about yourself Mm. through each piece and through each project of of self-expression. And so for me, this was about boundaries. (laughs) I did not have good boundaries. In my personal relationships, I didn't know what boundaries really were. I've got a lot of work to do on that stuff, and I have been doing that work. So it's like a relationship. You you invite someone in and they move in from the first day, and you don't think about, like, oh, maybe you should have just – you know, chill (laughs) a little first. So that's what the beginning of the Latitude was. It was like this influx of people and it was free. And it was actually the beta version of of, of the Latitude. This was not the actual released version of the Latitude. We never even got there. Uh The released version of the Latitude was like, okay, now we have these subscription fees and now we're launching the Latitude and we're going to expand our scope. And people were so furious about this and not just furious in the audience that was there were members of the staff at that point who were like you're taking this away from us yeah and i was like taking it away from you i just rolled out the red carpet and just let you inside the thing and now i don't even feel at home yeah and that's kind of the like the process and there's a lot of different stories and there's a lot of different perspectives on it but for me it was about that's why at the beginning of the signal she says, do not fall in love with the sound of
0: mm-hmm.
1: is why she says, this is not the moon. This is a finger pointing, pointing at the moon. M- yeah. Right. So, this is like me synthesizing all of that hurt. It was hurtful. It still is. Yeah. With of latitude. You know, there, there are people who are still very, very upset. And, um, you know, I'd love to hear them out if I have the chance. But, like I've processed all I've been processing all of that and figuring out like what are what is the right tone, what are the right boundaries, what is the right behavior, what is you know, yeah. And so that keeps on going into the next project, but it took me five years to get there to be ready to do it.
2: Yeah.
1: I've been under a rock for five
0: years. Yeah. Um well specifically the way that the the Latitude project uh, ended up that was highlighted so beautifully in, in Bright Axiom. That was just a great, great film. Um,
1: Spencer McCall, the yeah, guy.
0: Yeah, um, he, he did a great job on that. His, his, uh, his interview was hilarious in that, too. Um, <laughs> but uh, the way that that ended up with the, the whole experience kind of falling out of the creator's control a little bit, It reminded me a little bit of a documentary that I saw not long ago called... um, Oh, I'm going to mess up the name. I know I am. Kumare? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about?
1: Spencer's working with the guy who directed that movie right now. Oh, uh, Vikram? uh,
0: Vikram's like
1: the guy who was in it, but I think there was somebody else involved. Maybe I'm misspeaking. Maybe he was the producer or something. Maybe he was the producer of that one. I I don't know his name, but I do know that they're (laughs) collaborating on a dog film
0: Oh, wow. That's, that's going to be amazing. Um, yeah, for sure. but the, so
1: yeah, Kumari, uh, Yeah.
0: So the that, that thing was the whole plan at the end was to like fool people and then pull the rug out from under them. But even though people went into your experience, knowing that it was all, you know, a creation, they still were like, no, I don't want to give this up, which must have obviously stunned you. But like, what, what has been your big takeaway as a, as a creative person um, moving forward, you know, looking back on that?
1: Well, I think it's like I mentioned before, it's like, the more like mystique is a big part of these projects. It yes. always has been. like, it's the very early days, like nonchalance was anonymously doing and doing these things. The Jejeune Institute was, a, uh, you know, potentially like a cult, like, Using pseudoscience to do um, a metaphysical street battle um, against the elsewhere public works agency. Who the hell are the elsewhere public works agency, right? And then the Latitude Society, which is like more of this promising thing, but also a very kind of somber and gothic thing. Um, So all of them have this mystique that was meant to keep people in a state of unknowing. And so I think I'm learning a little bit more of the nuances of the unknowing and the wonder and the mistake. Like, what? It's a powerful thing. Basically, I didn't know, I didn't sign up to be like some kind of shaman, right. taking people to other worlds. But then I reluctantly realized, like, no, that's what's happening here. People are being transported to other realms yeah. here.
0: They're having like, their like religious life. experiences. Yeah.
1: Yeah, in their own imagination, in their own life, and you're tapping into something really, really, really powerful. That's why I bring it back to the QAnon thing Mm. of like, oh, wow, when you give people an empowering story, they are going to run with it all the way. If they feel empowered by a story, then that story is theirs.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that there's a, a huge parallel to what happened on January 6th to that too. Just like, you know, if somebody can convince somebody one thing and then get them uh, emotionally invested enough, the uh, the outcome can be something else. <laughs>
1: That's right. Something else beyond be all of our hands, right? And so it's like, yeah, give people some content, media, news facts that validates them or correlates with their worldview. Does it matter if it's true or false? Apparently not. you know. And then give them a sense of community, give them a sense of connection with other people and you can either take lead people into chaos or lead them towards me.
0: And that was kind of like the the situationists, that was kind of their whole thing, right? Was well was was oh, now I'm trying to remember if that was the those guys or the neo-rationalists that were like revolting against the spectacle.
1: I I need to go back to school. <laughs> but
0: um, their their whole I think idea of the spectacle was like this giant force of things that more or less oppress us every day. And we can get away from that in a couple of different ways. But one of those is through arts and, you know, creating our own spaces within the spaces that we've been given, which seems like it's kind of all what nonchalance is about, too. So how heavy were the uh, situationists in uh, in your influence? Because I know you said that situational design is a nod to that.
1: Yeah, so it's the spirit of it, and that they're kind of like the spiritual godfathers of nonchalance and fluxus and Dada, um, and the happenings and capra, and like, um, those are like the spiritual godfathers of nonchalance, but probably more subconsciously than consciously. Yeah, like, like I'm not like deeply studied in that stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, and a lot of that stuff, too, it seemed like it was um, more of a political response, whereas the stuff that you do. Well, I mean, you've had some uh, hand in production of things that were political, but as far as most of the stuff that you do, it's it's not anything to do with that. Right.
1: So it's just not my space. Anytime I've tried to dip my toes into anything directly political, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, I just don't know how to engage with it and i'm really passionate and fascinated by culture so that's where i'm drawn And we all have our part to play i mean i would like to support those who are doing political work i'd like to give my support to these people but it is not my gift at all yeah, yeah.
0: so i want to ask you a little bit about the um the different mediums that you've been in because it seems like kind of a progression right from Oaklandish, just, you know, setting up events on the spot for people to things that are more intentional, more, more, um, more planning and thought behind them. But, um, hmm. The moving into signal, into the podcast space, it, it, it seems like maybe from the outside you could say, well, after the, what happened with uh, Latitude Society, maybe you were just looking for something that was a little bit more controlled. But I saw on the social media that the first mention of Signal was like two years ago. So it, I thought maybe it was either in response to needing more of a control in your creative environment or possibly just responding to the pandemic. But it couldn't be the latter if you were in, into this thing two years ago. How old does this go?
1: Okay. Actually, yeah. So that vision of Signal, it keeps on evolving and mutating. But there was, two years ago, a team assembled to do a more ambitious project that had the name Signal. And it was more of a mobile platform that uh, invited people to curated experiences in the real world. And there was a whole team assembled, and we did prototypes. We did three rounds of tests. On that project, and I was working with some really like some cats, you know, from the you know tech and gaming world, and um, and it 2020 would have been terribly, truly such a yeah. You know what I mean? It's not a place to be doing real world social, you know, activation like that. So it it was like we dodged one by actually not going into the next phase. We, after the third kind of iteration, we hit the crux of this problem like, is this first party content or is this a user generated content platform? And I was more passionate about doing a user generated content platform where participants would be creating experiences. It's like an experience sharing thing, but like the other people involved, who I learned so much from, but they were like, no, I don't see it. Like, I really think that this should be first-party content. But um, that would have felt like a failure to me. or it wouldn't have been my goal. Yeah. What I really would like to do um, soon and and eventually, but hopefully soon, is that, like, to really, and it is happening to a degree, but, like, to give people the language and the tool set to, to begin to build our own meaningful experiences to realize that that kind of like a cultural or cathartic experience that you can get from church need not be dogmatic and that we can create our own rites, our own ceremonies our own rituals our own kind of initiations and um, again like we're not exactly in the time where we can do that together in a personified way but there are very small things that personally in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods that are meaningful acts like little rites of of little rites of passage or little ceremonious things. Um and I think in that way we're connecting with uh the divine and the eternal. Um which you know I'm not I'm not super religious, but I do wish that there was a church for me. You know, and I guess that's Maybe a small thing that I've been trying to do each time is like, where's my church? You know, but really the church is inside of us. Yeah. And that's the message. of
0: this. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that is the message of the, well, I don't have to tell you, but um, I, I remember listening to it the first time and feeling like, okay, this is just going to be like a straightforward storytelling podcast. And then feeling like, okay, wait a minute. No. This is starting to feel almost like a guided meditation. Like and then I get to a point where I just don't really know what to expect out of it. Um which I think is kind of part of the <laughs> part of the intention and part of the allure to it, right?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um it is it does require a certain amount of attention that I don't know if the youth are going to connect with it in the same way like um, all the, the my earlier projects came from like a real youth energy mm. and now I'm, I'm just asking different questions at this point in my life and so I, I think it is kind of a slow meditative journey like I really encourage people to like close their eyes with some headphones and lay down you know um, and then that may lead to other things that may lead to other experiences if you choose to you know pull on the threads, but the podcast itself is really like that slow thoughtful thing. And it d- is a little trance inducing. So mm. it's hard to um, actually give your full attention during like one extended listen and that's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, after one listen and then getting through the whole thing, um, my first thought was, okay, uh, I need to listen to this again, <laughs> which you know I think part of the reason why I think that signal is so great is because it has that you know stick stick itiveness in your mind it it's very it's very haunting like a a couple of a couple of select books have been in my mind, maybe one or two movies, but then this this podcast as well
1: so glad to hear it yeah, I love listening to them. I listen to them over and over and over. Again. To me, it's like just an album that I'm going to put on repeat.
0: When you put the podcast together, well, first of all, how big was the team of people, you know, from, from writers all the way to voice actors and everything, how many people contributed directly to that? To The Signal? Yeah.
1: So I give a lot of... Uh, credit to my inspirations, which we mentioned the Tyler now and Michael Mead podcast, which was so helpful to me. It's like giving me a map. And um, Yeah, so, I listened to that.
0: That was a great uh, podcast episode that you referenced, but just a very good podcast in general.
1: Yeah, it jogged me out of my creative slumber. Like It totally like woke me up like, oh my God, and then I felt like I had a map. So um, I really tried to do this as independently as possible. I've got some great voice talent. That I've worked with before, and um, so there's three main uh, voice actors who are working on it, and then um, I've got uh, Ben Decker did the sound mastering on this, and Terrence Reeves did some of the sound work on it in terms of like taking my mixes and really humming them um, and coming up with a, 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 a better master. Yeah, um, and then the graphic design and the web. Um, Michael Augustine is a guy from Ohio who has, I've been just kind of casually collaborating with, but he's been helpful with me. And um, that's it. So I'm working on it full time and then there's some role players involved, um, but it's pretty bare bones.
0: Yeah. Did you write the... the- the script for it more or less yourself or was there a, kind of a team effort in that
1: well I borrow language liberally from uh, Tala Calvino and I make it original and I try to I mean I don't think there's anything in the world like the signal and I did get permission to use those passages yeah. in the prologue in the episode one specifically um, but the uh, otherwise like writing it all out was uh, I did
0: independently that that that's amazing to me. I've uh
1: I can use some help actually. There's some certain things with like the notes you hit in a three-act structure and the formulas of drama that I think uh could probably be better leveraged in this. So I'm I'm I did my best.
0: <laughs> well, if you ever want uh want a writer to Give an opinion or anything, man. I'm, I'm always around.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to take you up on that for sure. I'm actually kind of stuck on, um, I, I had written episode four already and after releasing the first three episodes, I'm like, I need to come back to this. I need to rewrite this. So I'm doing it right now. And I'm, I like, I was doing that right before uh, we started talking and I am a little stuck. So. Um, uh, I'll hit you up after
0: this to get your uh, feedback on it. Yeah, I would love that. Um, that And, you know, one of the things about this podcast, too, that's been so fun for me is I've talked to other novelists. I talked to um, musicians, business people. Um, I talked to somebody who is actually a big fan of yours. Um, his name is Mike Bryman. He's from San Francisco. Well, he's not from San Francisco, but he lives there now. Um, and he's mm-hmm. a Academy Award winning visual effects artist and virtual reality guy. Um, So if you ever need somebody like that, you should definitely check him out too. Um, I think. Um, but yeah, the 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 big thread from this podcast has been that regardless what your creative medium is, is that creative people all want to help each other. And you know, you talked about looking for a church, and even though it's not a well defined one, I, I think that that creative community has kind of become my church through this podcast. Um, I don't know if that's kind of similar with your feelings on it, but not not my podcast. Wonderful
1: to hear! I really do um, need to get out of the pond of like California immersive. Like it is a pond that is like it's a scene that there's a whole big world out there beyond it that I really would like to connect with. You know.
0: Is that somebody singing in the background?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, sure. that's so cute. How many kids you got?
1: I've got two. I've got a 14-year-old boy and Sailor is two and a half.
0: Oh, okay. I've got uh, I've got a pretty good spread of kids, too. I've got a 19, a 12, and a 7 and 4. Two girls and then two boys.
1: Oh, my God. Busy man.
0: Yeah. Um. All right. Nice. I, I, I want to ask you just a little bit about the um the other Calvino... Um, inspiration the six memos which were actually five because he unfortunately passed away before he got the sixth one done um that's right and i was just wondering if we could go through some of these points and you could kind of tell me how you approach those with uh or, or or just what they mean to you creatively sure sure okay so Italiano i didn't Albino, get through
1: the whole um the whole lecture series. I, I listened to them on audio and I think I got like three through three. of
0: them. Oh, that's even better than I did because I didn't try to get through everything. I uh, just read lots of reviews of them. <laughs> okay. But um, so the things that he talks about, which uh, his memos were about what is worthy of praise or what's just not praise, but like what's worthwhile in literature. And he says, lightness, quickness, exactitude, visibility, and multiplicity. And the last one seems like you have learned how to hit on very well. Um, But lightness. Uh, He talks about approaching heavy things in a quick, easy way that doesn't put too much stress on the reader. And I think of, like, any Westerns or, like, the um, Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean. You always see these guys in the beginning of the movie, like, about to die. And then they just kind of laugh it off and hop, skip, and a jump, and they're out of there. How do you approach lightness with uh, your work in that way? Or do you see it a different way?
1: He really just, that section is so poetic in his lecture about about lightness. Um, And he talks about the weight of the world and like the sense of, I don't know, it it is kind of a spiritual thing. Um, But he's also talking about style. A literary style where it's like we can address heavy things, but we need not be laboring, right? Um, and so I could do more to take notes on that. Um, but yeah, the, the lightness of you know, like if suddenly like gravity is alleviated or there's some magnetic force that, that lifts us, um, that's both like a sense, like a, a this kind of a spiritual sense of transcendence, but he, yeah, he's also applying it to his writing style Yeah, which is, is to say, kind of keep it floating, you know, keep it. Um, yeah. Don't, um, don't come down too hard on, on, on things. He, he's able to do it. He's a master. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That idea of yeah. Gravity with lightness is, uh, is, is, Something that I think anybody who writes should study, um, but the yeah, next Sorry, one, I don't have more
1: developed uh, ideas about this stuff. I'm just kind of like responding.
0: Yeah, no, 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 no worries. That's what people want to listen to. Um, quickness, and he actually, I pulled a direct quote that he has is, "I am Saturn, who dreams of Mercury," and the idea of quickness is you want to combine action, which is Mercury, with contemplation, Saturn, um, and that seems like you very much take that idea with the the introductions to your projects of, you know, Oh man, you're the person who just sits and thinks and wishes that things could be different. But you know, now is the call to do it actually get out there and do it. Um, so I don't know how do how do you approach that idea with your work? Am I kind of barking up the wrong tree or?
1: No, not at all. Um, quickness. I, I just like free association. Um, I'm relating it to my own sense of like impulse and instinct mm. and um, definitely like everything has its moment and its time. and You're not necessarily um, the arbiter of when that time will be, but um, to be able to act on something in the moment. And also when you're delivering experiences for people, you know, timing and tempo is something to be mindful of. So when he talks about quickness, I think that's, Maybe what he's touching on is, is like the the, the rhythm of, of your work, and sometimes I like to slow it way down too. Sometimes I'm trying to just slow it all down.
0: Exactitude. I'll just gloss over that one because he talks about you know using the right word for the right thing that you're trying to convey, which I guess actually might be more. I don't know. Do you think do you think that word choice is more important? With podcasts specifically, since it's such an auditory thing,
1: I haven't thought about it in those terms, but I think that word choice is an interesting thing because I'm always trying to like reclaim words that um, might have been like out of fashion, like <laughs> oaklandish, hmm. like to, to use that word and just put that twist on it nonchalance, somebody could describe it as something like possibly negative or uncaring, but when you say divine nonchalance, you're saying it's the right kind of uncaring. Yeah. You're, 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 you're not um, overly concerned about the things that you shouldn't be overly concerned about. You're, right. It enables this spark of creativity. And then jejume um, also has this connotation, and it's meant to, like the, the Jejeune Institute, you should be questioning why it's called that. And it's not even pronounced correctly correct pronunciation is Jeju, a hard j and i'm like no mm, no soft j so i'm always taking language and trying to like reclaim it or redefine it uh, to varying degrees of
0: success. well that's that's a, a a very common thread with just nonchalance in general is the um well i'm trying to think earlier i think you called it um, playing in negative urban spaces um, do, do you still call it that or do you have you kind of moved more into the whole like mixing of narrative genuine space play and warp zone in the middle um, like it like the diagram on the website now
1: Right, so I. Um... Yeah, I was definitely obsessed with this reclamation of urban space and activating other spaces. But I think the world has changed to such a degree that we don't have the freedom and the liberty to play in the way that I was provoking it 20, 10 and 20 years ago. Right. We live in a security state. We live in a state where people are very, very skeptical. More and more fences and cameras are, and security measures are up all the time. Yeah. Uh, there's massive encampments of houseless people mm-hmm. outside the streets where I live in the most metropol- uh, you know, metropolis. Uh, and so the times are such that that kind of like, oh, let's explore and let's play here. And like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, you got to be really, really bold. And you also need to, I also realized that I can't invite everybody into these like little hidden spaces all the time because a lot of the audience aren't um, accountable in a certain way. So you have to be accountable when you're doing that too. Mm. So I just feel like the the landscape has shifted enough that my focus has changed. Um, I still am interested in genuine space, meaning embodied space, the room that we're in, the air that we breathe, the temperature of the sound. The, the touch, the taste. I want it to exist in the visceral world. Mm. But I'm no longer... I don't need to do a spectacle in public space. Anymore. Yeah. Well,
0: much. how do you... It, it, with, the, with the other projects, you have some control over the genuine space, but with uh, with the podcast... You don't, but I guess that's kind of where the, the narrator comes in and he's like, tell everybody to leave you alone <laughs> and get comfortable and, you know. so, But it, did uh, did you feel or perceive any challenges with podcasting just not having that genuine space for people to come together and interact with or did it come together rather seamlessly?
1: So there was a time not very long ago where I just thought the idea of a podcast was too, for what I was trying to uh, kind of intrigue in people, it was just too low of the bar, Yeah, right? Just like, just, you know, an hour, 30 minutes of audio, like never going to be able to like um, blow people's minds that way. You know, how am I going to do that? Um, but then you, turn that in on itself you inverse that and you say okay here's a design challenge right limitations are good right Mm. so okay within the limits of this medium what is possible and so yes it is a just 30 minutes of audio that could be listened to in uh, itself and for that i hope it's entertaining. i do uh you might have frozen here no i can tell you okay cool um I hope that it stands on its own as just a 30-minute piece of audio that people are like, "Oh, well, that was that's cool. That was interesting. I'll do the next episode," you know. Yeah. But if you are curious enough and you are kind of uh, listening to the instructions embedded into the episode, you'll download the codicil document. Mm. And you'll use the glyphs on that page to unlock the glyph latch. And if you do that, and that's why we say print out the document, it has to be manifest in the material world. It can't just be on your monitor. Yeah. If it begins and ends either in your headphones or on the monitor, then, you know, like I said, I hope it stands on its own. But there is another aspiration here that people are going to print this out, they're going to listen to this audio, and they're going to be activated in the real world, they're going to be taking jobs, they're going to be doing participatory and collaborative activities, mm. and that is the direction that this is going, in. and we haven't even got there yet. This is just the beginning.
0: And that is a good uh, segue into multiplicity, because um, the, that seemed like the hardest part of um, of 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 all the memos, the the hardest one for at least me to find a uniform meaning on. Can you maybe tell me kind of what you think about multiplicity?
1: Cue me up with a quote. What's what's he talking about?
0: <laughs> He's talking about weaving together the various branches of knowledge, the various codes into a manifold and multifaceted vision of the world. So when he talks about that, like at at face value, you could be like, oh, that's like you know make sure that your story is complex enough with subplots that you know aid or assist the main plot or um other people said no you know multiplicity means that something takes a new life outside of its um outside of its original art form and it makes you think or it makes you act differently but i i don't know
1: yeah i i, I that resonates with me a lot because i want I'm really, um, I'm always in pursuit of ideas. I'm like the idea hunter or the belief gardener, you know, beliefs and yeah. ideas. I'm, I'm really fascinated by those things, and so I do try to incorporate like big ideas into the pieces, and the pieces themselves are big ideas. But it better be aesthetic, and it better have a sense of humor. Yeah, and uh, it you know, it better bump you know a certain point you know it's it it and so um you know like i've got a very esoteric kind of taste in in, in culture and visual art and, and literature and all those things so i think that that kind of multi-dimensionality is is i, I hope it's present in this work yeah um but that's that's kind of how i'm how I respond to that,
0: I guess. Fair enough. Um, All right, well, we'll start wrapping this up here pretty soon. Um, But just last um, question or thoughts or whatever on on the signal. Um, This says volume one. Do you, are you at liberty to say, do you have an idea like how many volumes of this there will be?
1: Um, Right now, we'll be really pleased to wrap this as it's planned which is you know including the prologue and the interlude and the epilogue Mm. and a couple of bonus episodes it's going to be like nine episodes right Um, and we really you know want to build an audience of participants with this and have a, a, a good reception as a podcast but it's essentially a pilot it's a pilot It's, it's trying to kind of like test the waters to see if this, um, uh, uh, if this kind of like participatory methodology can soar within the medium of a podcast and, um, it remains to be seen.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I got to believe that it's going to blow people's minds or at least it blew mind, but, uh. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe if, like you were saying, if, if somebody's not that analytical, it won't be their thing. But even if they don't want to do the the other pieces, like, yeah, you can still enjoy and get a lot out of just listening, too.
1: You know, it's not for everybody. I can't get my kids to listen to this. I can't get my, my wife is very supportive, but she's not involved. She's not involved. She doesn't want to be. involved. We were, like, riffing on this on the Discord channel earlier. People who are like, yeah, I'm trying to turn my friends on to it. And I'm like, I love it, but I can't get other people to listen to. And so I acknowledge that it's really it's not for everyone, or maybe it's for a certain time in people's life. Mm. But I, I do believe that that there is an audience out there. So it's just a matter of reaching those people.
0: You know, Jeff, it really makes me happy to hear you say that your kids aren't interested. <laughs> in what you do because my uh my uh, novel that I'm trying to get published right now um I I tried to get my oldest kid to read it and she was kind of like uh well I will, I, will. And I said hey are you ever going to read this and she goes you know I I don't want to just because if I don't like it I won't know what to say to you <laughs> <laughs>
1: right like that's too much just today I was on a walk with my son Everly I I played the podcast for him, and I was on a road trip, and his friend Jasper was in the car, and it, you know Jasper's cool kid. He goes to art school and everything like. So I'm like, you know, like, yeah, let me put this on, <laughs> you know? and and they they were patient with me, and then Everly today it was like. Jasper just said that he liked it because he you know he was afraid to tell you that he didn't like it. <laughs> you know? So it's like it's it's a tough sell. a yeah. pretty they, they don't think we're
0: very Yeah. Well that's that's kind of the uh the tough the tough thing for any artist, right? Is trying to find somebody whose opinion you can trust and actually get them to give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Every, anytime yeah. I, I give something to somebody. Well, a lot of times, like, my closest friends are kind of like, oh, I don't really want to read your stuff. We'll just hang out, and that's enough for me. Um, But, uh, yeah, when I give something to somebody who actually does read it, um, I brace myself for them to be like, this is terrible, and this is why. But then when I hear, oh, hey, this is actually really good. This was fun to read. I'm like, ah, they're lying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Or, like, if there are, like, ten people who – dig it. in one person who's like, no, that, that's, that's what you remember. That's what's going to like ring in your ears is the one person who was like, no, man, I'm not feeling it at all. Or you get like nine good reviews and one bad review.
0: Yeah. Well, and that, and you know, you're a writer too. So you, you know, you've got to have thick skin if you want to, if you want to do it and even try to get somebody to read it.
1: I'm still working on that. I'm so sensitive. I'm so sensitive.
0: Oh man. You know, I, I think the thing that broke me down was um, all the writing classes I took when I was in college because you read something to a group of like three, four, five people and they all tell you what they thought was awesome and then they tell you all what they thought was the worst of it. And after a while, you just kind of, it breaks the feeling of like, oh, I don't want to know what people's real thoughts are and you just kind of get down to the like, oh, well, you know, I can fix that. So (laughs) I've gotten to a good place with accepting criticism now i can i can look at it as oh that's just something i need to fix not oh there's something inherently wrong with me as a person
1: (laughs) oh man you just took me back to writing class right there i want to go back to workshop my stuff are you in workshops and stuff
0: no no i haven't done anything like that in a while um i've got a couple other writers and i read their stuff they read my stuff but uh no like formal structure like that
1: Okay, well, I'm gonna hit you up because I do need a little assistance, you know, tie in a little nice bow on this one. So yeah. I'm gonna run it by you.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I can help, but I'd love to try. I appreciate it. So is there anything that we should have talked about that we haven't, that you can think of?
1: I feel like um, you're interested in the same things that I'm interested in about these projects. Yeah. You know? Um, a lot of people, yeah, like have different angles or interests in it. But we talked about what I what I enjoyed talking about today.
0: Oh, good. I'm I'm glad that it was uh, enjoyable and not just you know one thing that you had to do and get out of the way for uh, you know for marketing and uh, publicity and whatnot. Um,
1: no, not at all. This is a great conversation.
0: Oh, good. I'm yeah. I'm glad to hear that, Jeff. I uh, I, I enjoyed it too. And uh, do me a favor next time you see uh, Augie. Or talk to Augie. Tell him thank you so much for uh, uh, connecting us, and uh, I gotta, I gotta find out more about the things that he's done too in the past.
1: Yeah, he's so busy. He's doing amazing stuff. Um, He applies this kind of thing to to uh, branding uh, a lot, you know. But he really wants to, you know, find a way to do just the immersive work, just totally independently of the client work, you know, which is a whole another challenge in itself.
0: Yeah yeah we talked a little bit about that but uh
1: that's actually one of my main critiques of society is that our most creative people are forced to be sales people forced to be oh just, my God. Just, you i know
0: i know and well like uh kurt vonnegut was a car salesman before he started writing um uh, uh rodney dangerfield sold i think vinyl siding or something for houses he gave up comedy for a while and just did that um and, and, you know, the list goes on and on of people that just Quentin Tarantino worked at blockbuster, you know, like,
1: well, I'm talking even the creatives who are like, we're in advertising and marketing and, you know, brand strategy. and. Oh yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Our, sure. Our sure. creatives are like just sucked into that corporate thing. That's where,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely written blogs before where I'm like, ugh. Just, you know, like the content of what I'm writing or for who I'm writing it for. But I'm just like, well, that's, you know, that's that's how I'm going to keep pushing forward with the stuff that I'm really passionate about. <laughs> yeah.
1: Most people I know are in that position.
0: Yeah. Jeff, it's been great talking to you. Uh, I guess we can go ahead and uh, end it here, but stick around for just a second after we uh, after we wrap here. OK, we'll do.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Thank you. And everybody check out nonchalance. Listen to the signal. Um, when you go to nonchalance's website, you can find all their projects, descriptions, links, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, check them out on, on, uh, all social media too. Are you guys on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those? Yes. Yeah? Cool. Um, and that'll all be up in the show notes too. So Jeff, thank you for stopping by and spending some time with us. Uh, thank you everybody for listening.